0: Randolph, Karen Meadows, Anna Ozbeck and Matt Ely. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much
1: for joining us. You're tuned into KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Rising Up with Sonali, but first this from KBOO. KBOO Community Radio
0: is a proud co-sponsor of The Big Float, a parade, float and beach party happening July 13th on the Willamette River in downtown Portland. The Big Float is a movement disguised as a party that features music by Blitzen and Trapper and Red Ray Frazier. It is a celebration of our city's river and a benefit for the Human Access Project. The Human Access Project has helped revive Portland's relationship with the Willamette River and has worked to create poets and Audrey McCall swim beaches. The Big Float 9 features music, a float, and parade. Again, that's the Big Float 9 happening Saturday, July 13th on the Willamette River downtown. Gates open at 10 a.m. and parade number one begins at 1 p.m. To register or learn more, visit TheBigFloat.com. More information can be found at KBOO.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hello, KBOO members.
2: Thank you for being part of our amazing community. It takes all of us to manage this great community resource and the role played by the KBOO Board of Directors is essential. Here's an opportunity for you to join the KBOO Board and become part of the team that is guiding our daily work and representing the interests and visions of all of our members. Please consider applying to become a KBOO Board member if you want to help serve our community and put your gifts and talents to good use. There is a time commitment of about 15 hours a month for all board members and you must be a KBU member. To apply, go to KBU.fm and fill out an application or stop by the station to pick up a paper copy. The deadline to apply is July 13, 2019. We are looking for folks who love KABU, who are committed to our community and who want to carry forward KABU's values of peace, justice democracy, human rights, multiculturalism, environmentalism, freedom of expression and social change. KBU needs you.
1: Apply today. You're listening to KBU Community Radio. The time is 8:01 and 55 seconds right there on the dot. Coming up next is Rising Up with Sonali, Positively Revolting is off today. But we have this for you instead because uh, Sonali is good feminist stuff as well. Then at 9 o'clock, it's Radio Zine. And after that, at 10, it's Madness Radio bringing you the voices and visions from outside of mental health. Don't forget, you can always become a member of KABU today. Support your community at kboo.fm or go onto our mobile app and click on that donate button. And Here's Rising Up with Sonali. (laughs)
3: PFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. On our show today, we'll examine two new reports that Physicians for Human Rights released on the migrant crisis how traumatized Central American children are and how immigration enforcement is obstructing the medical care of migrants. Then author Suketu Mehta on his latest book, This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto. Finally, one of the nation's most prominent Latino playwrights, Octavio Solis, will discuss his new memoir, "Retablos: Stories from a Life Lived Along the Border. That's coming up in just a moment. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. While the Trump administration is lauding its success in strong-arming Mexico to militarize its response to northward migration, there is no acknowledgement on the government's part to understand what drives migrants to the U.S. or how poorly the U.S. treats them when they are here. Two new reports by Physicians for Human Rights attempts to shed light on these untold parts of the story. First. There is no one here to protect you. Trauma among children fleeing violence in Central America is a report detailing the horrific violence that children face in countries like Honduras and El Salvador. Second, not in my exam room, how US immigration enforcement is obstructing medical care is a report highlighting what the New York Times and other outlets have begun reporting on, how Border Patrol and other immigration enforcement authorities are endangering migrant patients receiving healthcare in the US. My guest is Catherine Hampton. She coordinates the Asylum Network Program at Physicians for Human Rights. The Asylum Network Program is an initiative that recruits, trains, and supports a network of clinicians to provide forensic evaluations for asylum seekers and to advocate for human rights based immigration policies. She's co-authored both reports we'll discuss and she joins us now from Capitol Hill. Hi, Catherine.
4: Hi, Sonali. Thanks so much for having me on.
3: Let's talk about the report on children first, in terms of what it is that drives migration to the U.S. We've um, heard that there are record numbers of unaccompanied minors that are reaching the U.S. border. What your report points out is almost too difficult to imagine in terms of the violence they face. Can you give us a sense of what it is these children are fleeing in uh, Central Amer- from Central America?
4: Yeah, I think in the U.S. right now, it's uh, the demographic change is very clear to everyone. We all recognize that um, rising numbers of whether unaccompanied minors or children coming with their family members um, are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. And a question that we've all been asking ourselves is, you know, why are they coming to the U.S.? And that's been the topic of many policy debates. And so we undertook this research to do a deep dive and really. Um, do a scientific uh, analysis of forensic evaluations of um, children and adolescents seeking asylum in the US to really uh, uncover um, their reasons for fleeing their home country. And what PHR's uh, medical experts found is that actually um, among the children in our study, um, 78% of them uh, experienced direct physical violence, including aggravated assault with instruments, sometimes with firearms. 18% 18% were subject to sexual violence. Um, 58% uh, were witnessed a horrific acts of violence, including their parents being killed in front of them, family members mutilated. So the extreme harm, and the extreme violence that children were fleeing really um, help us to understand that, you know, in many cases, children are not just coming to the U.S. Uh, voluntarily out of choice, but really because they have no other option. Um, Another section of our report talks about the failure of state protection. So children recounted times when they would try to go to the police to seek help and protection, and police members would either actively abuse them or completely ignore um, the crimes that had been committed against them, refuse to investigate. Um, Children reported gang infiltration into police, police uh, being intimidated by gang members and not investigating crimes against children. So. the children who our experts evaluated really um, came from very extreme situations and that that those findings really need to impact our policy response.
3: So that means the children that are arriving at the border are arriving with deep trauma, a lot of mental trauma, I imagine, and probably even some physical trauma. And then they have to contend with the US immigration system, which under Trump in the last two years has become so much harsher.
4: Absolutely, you know, the the clinical findings among the children that we evaluated showed that um, three-quarters of the children had a major mental health diagnosis, uh, most commonly PTSD, but also depression and anxiety disorder. Um, And so when you look at the stories of what these children have survived, when you look at their mental health diagnosis, you know, the last thing that would occur to anyone is to say, oh, these are children who need to be detained indefinitely, supported from their primary caretaker. You know, it's just not a logical policy response. Hmm.
3: And so, um, the uh, how, did, how exactly did this, re- what was this report based on? How did you get access um, to children and what sort of assessments were conducted?
4: Mm-hmm. So Physicians for Human Rights Asylum Program actually has a 30-year history and our clinicians have conducted thousands of these forensic evaluations, which are based on the Istanbul Protocol, which is the UN standard for documenting torture and persecution. So um, we have more than 1,400 clinicians around the country who are tra- trained in Istanbul Protocol Standards, and they know how to document psychological and physical aftereffects of torture and persecution. So they work with attorneys who represent these children um, to prepare a medical legal affidavit, which is used in the client's case. So um, the 183 uh, cases that we looked at were you know expert evaluations of clinicians who did a full patient history who um, completed either medical or mental health diagnoses depending on the, the trauma symptoms that the that the child was presenting with so these are really you know it's not just kind of a guesstimate you know it's really based on the children that were surveyed it's, it's really an expert diagnosis um, by clinicians who are specifically trained who have a lot of experience working with asylum seekers um, and have very considerable expertise, in, especially in working with children, so, which is um, a particular challenging type of evaluation.
3: So then, the results of what you found—these children are going through—do um, they meet the standards for asylum that the United States has agreed to? An international framework on asylum um, that the that the U.S. has agreed to and should, under international law, be you know accepting asylum claims for.
4: You know, so asylum, the standard for asylum is very high And at Physicians for Human Rights we affirm that standard So we're not saying, you know, every single person deserves to receive asylum Asylum um, is for someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution Based on one of five protected grounds Race, religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, particular social group It's someone who has either persecuted by the government or by a group the government is unable or unwilling to control So this is a very high bar But I think what's really crucial for us to always reaffirm is due process. So these children have complex stories. Our our findings show that children were um, subject to multiple forms of trauma by multiple perpetrators. You know, extremely complex and and severe forms of harm um, that really need to be evaluated individually and by trained professionals.
3: Now, are these just uh, unaccompanied children you were looking at, or do you include children traveling with their parents?
4: Both unaccompanied and children traveling with with parents or with other family members who are carrying
3: so for those who have, uh, obviously the ones are traveling unaccompanied are facing their own sets of trauma, and I can only imagine what they go through in traveling, what, what someone younger than 18 is going through, traveling hundreds of miles north through Mexico and to the US border, but then those who might have the safety of being with their parents have a, a very high likelihood of being separated from their parents, at least for a time once they enter the US, right?
4: You know, um, there is a permanent injunction against family separation, um, so the practice of family separation as a deterrence measure has been struck down in the courts as unconstitutional. Um, however, there are reports that the government continues to separate families, and so that's something that really, um, it, you know, as a practice, it must stop. It's, it's illegal. It's unconstitutional. It's a violation of civil and political rights of uh, children to have uh, to remain with their parents and for parents to have custody of their children as long as it's in the best interest of the child. So yes, that's definitely um, a practice that, that cannot be uh, implemented in this country.
3: And so then those migrants who do end up in the United States and who might be needing medical care, are we are now hearing face additional trauma. In doctors' rooms and doctors, uh in, in, in uh, during the, you know receiving healthcare. So let's turn to the second report that has come out around the same time that your organization, um, Physicians for Human Rights, released. Not in my exam room. How U.S. immigration enforcement is obstructing medical care. Earlier this week, uh, the New York Times uh, reported a terrible story of how a pregnant migrant woman um, was basically you know had her healthcare obstructed by border patrol agents who refused. To to leave the room when she was receiving treatment. She had early uh, onset labor. Um, and recently, Rewire.News had a similar set of stories that they found, um, not Border Patrol, but U.S. Marshal Service um, doing the same sort of thing, shackling pregnant women. Um, so tell us about this report. How widespread is this practice? Because if these migrants are coming to the U.S. with physical or mental health issues, um, many of them are likely ending up receiving medical, needed medical care and now we find out that the enforcement agents are so zealous in their um, desire to detain these migrants that they are in some ways obstructing the medical care.
4: Yes, so um, this policy brief is based on about 60 interviews that I and other colleagues conducted in um, California, Arizona, and Texas, in different cities, and it was really reflecting the concerns of healthcare providers that we spoke to who Face situations where they ask a border patrol agent to unshackle basically a dying patient. You know, a patient dying of metastatic cancer, an HIV patient with severe dehydration to the point of organ failure. And not only did the border patrol agent refuse to unshackle the person, but also refused to give any justification why someone who was so physically weak, you know, needed to be under five-point shackles or some kind of restraints, which don't allow for the doctor to provide the, the treatment that they're. You know, trying to give to this person to, to help them. Um, so I think this is, again, this is this issue, just as we see with children and families, family separation, where uh, security policies, which are you know, a necessary part of our law enforcement, are unfortunately being given um, precedent over people's lives. So that's, that's really where we need to draw the line. You know, health and human rights needs to be our priority and doctors need to be able to to deliver care to to patients who are sick, um, you know, even if they're, you know, regardless of their immigration status.
3: Right. Uh, The Times pointed out that these patients were being treated as dangerous felons um, when, uh, you know, they have uh, here in the country uh, seeking asylum. Now, what are doctors' rights? Because I imagine that many, some of the doctors that are, in these situations might uh, find that this is a new experience for them. That they're trying to treat somebody who clearly needs medical care. And meanwhile, they have these agents, either border patrol or other law enforcement, immigration law enforcement agents in the room uh, with them. Um, do doctors even know what their rights are? And so what do you recommend needs to happen?
4: Yeah, so I fully recommend um, for all physicians and other health professionals to be fully informed about patient rights, about their own rights as a provider to offer ethical evidence-based care, um, because that is one of the problems, is that we do have existing uh, legal standards and policy guidelines that can really um, protect the rights of patients, but if they're not well known and they're not implemented properly, then, you know, we face these kind of dangerous situations where, where people's health is really being put at risk. Um, so, for example, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, this is a federal legislation which states that, um, you know, everyone should is entitled to receive emergency medical care, you know, life-saving assistance, um, regardless of their ability to pay or their immigration status. So that's something that we already have enshrined in our laws. Um, and both Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Customs and Border Protection have a policy called the Sensitive Locations Policy. Where they recognize that um, immigration enforcement should not take place in hospitals because hospitals are a place where you know we need to care for patients. So that's that's not the place to arrest someone if they're receiving chemotherapy or they're receiving some kind of very critical treatment or surgery. Um, And so we really need for ICE and CBP to reaffirm the sensitive locations policy to ensure that all of their agents are trained and are, are fully implementing the policy. Um, so that we can have enforcement, but enforcement which isn't sacrificing people's lives and their health.
3: So in your report, you bring up this idea of a sanctuary hospital. Um, We've heard of sanctuary cities. We've heard of sanctuary churches. What is a sanctuary hospital?
4: So a sanctuary hospital is um, a safe space where patients don't have to be afraid that they're going to be targeted for enforcement when they're receiving care. And it's just a space where um, doctors and other healthcare providers are free to offer treatment um, according to their ethical uh, and specialty, you know, standards, and um, where patients' rights are also fully protected. So that can look different ways, but I think there are many ways for hospital policies to really reaffirm um, those existing legal rights and to um, show providers exactly how they can ensure that that patient rights are, are protected you know, it is very frustrating, um, but I think everyone is on the same page that no one wants more children to die. And it's just a question of how urgently we need to act and what are the solutions to stop that from happening. So I think some of the, um, the disparities there are looking at uh, what are what kind of solutions can we really propose? And I think what the report um, based on the forensic evaluations of child asylum seekers really shows is, listen, if people are fleeing really horrific violence and extreme harm, and they have no recourse to protection in their home country, even the most punitive deterrent strategies are not going to be effective. So I think we need to reconsider what is really going to be an effective immigration strategy. Um, And we can do that. We have the tools to do that while at the same time respecting health and human rights. Give out
3: a website, Catherine, where people can find out more. I understand that on Physicians for Human Rights' website, there's a petition people can sign?
4: Absolutely. So if you go to PHR.org, that's our website. And uh, there's a drop-down menu under Take Action. And so we have a number of actions where you can contact um, representatives in Congress. You can contact um, the Department of Homeland Security. So we have online forums where you can easily just write in your own personal message on um, the topics of child detention, family detention, family separation, and send in your inputs to our policy
3: we link to that from our website. Catherine, good luck to you. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much.
3: My guest has been Catherine Hampton. She coordinates the Asylum Network Program at the group Physicians for Human Rights. Again, that website is phr.org. She is co-authored both of the reports that we were just discussing. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at RisingUpWithSonali.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our video channel on Vimeo and find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. P.F.K. Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The New York Times recently published a provocative op-ed entitled Why should immigrants respect our borders, the West never respected theirs? In it, author Suketu Mehta speculated that perhaps immigration quotas should be based on how badly the host country has destroyed a refugee's nation. Suketu Mehta has a new book out called This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto. He's the author of Maximum City, Bombay Lost and Found, which won several awards and was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His work has been published in the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, Granta, Harper's Magazine and more. And he's an associate professor of journalism at New York University. Welcome to the program Suketu.
5: Thanks so much for having me on
3: Finale. So first let's talk about the op-ed that that you published um, because this is, you know, certainly I I imagine it might've made some waves, Um, but uh, very few people link the refugee crisis globally today, not just on our Southern border here in the US. Very few people link the crisis of migration to the crisis that has actually been created by the West that has actually driven Um, the movement of people. Um, Did you get any pushback from your piece?
5: Nothing that I have ever written in my decades of reporting has uh, gotten more of a response, both pro and con. Uh, When I last checked, I had some 200,000 people reading just a tweet that I'd sent out about the op-ed, and it was the fourth most emailed article on the entire New York Times website. And I've been getting a lot of death threats. So there's been a lot of praise, but also there's a a small segment of people who's sending just the most incredibly racist abuse and vilification and go go back to where you're from. And you know, there's some really scary things like people asking how to get into NYU buildings, if you need ID to get in. So I've clearly touched a nerve. And the nerve is just this, in my book and in my op-ed, what I ask is the question that's really not being asked much in the global debate about migration, which is, why are people leaving in the first place, right? I mean, people are leaving more than ever before. Today, there are a quarter of a billion people on the planet who uh, were born in a country other than the one in which they're in currently. Um, so people are moving in large numbers. That's if all the migrants, or a nation by ourselves, we'd be the fourth largest country in the world, bigger than Indonesia. We're moving on because we hate our homes and our families and our language and our customs, but because we have no choice, because colonialism, war, inequality and climate change uh, have rendered many of these countries uninhabitable. The rich countries stole the future of the poor countries by ruling over them for hundreds of years, Uh, then by creating a world order which is deeply rigged against the developing nations, by dumping an enormous amount of carbon in the atmosphere, um, and by creating wars and selling guns to uh, these countries. So so what I say is essentially, we are here because you were there. And while most people appreciated my message, uh, there's a segment of people uh, for whom this is just, you know, very hard to hear and they feel I'm being ungrateful to the country and I should go back to where I come from. And my response is, well, Queens, because that's where I grew up.
3: Queens, well, your family, you're you're originally from India and you write in your book about the various countries that your family has traveled in and moved around, and like you, I'm an immigrant as well, uh, with multiple stops between India and here where my family is concerned, and of course, India has a huge uh, a history of hundreds of years of colonialism under the British, um, but you make these links um, specifically about the wars that are driving refugees to the United States that have been banned, right? The Muslim ban targeted people from Iraq, targeted people from Afghanistan, those very countries where we currently have wars. And it's remarkable to me that people are denying the connection between the two, between the refugees wanting to move here and our role in making their country uninhabitable almost.
5: That's right, let's look at Iraq, for example. We went in there, And under false pretenses, launched an illegal and incredibly violent war in which 600,000 Iraqis, according to the respected science publication, The Lancet, did a body count, 600,000 Iraqis died because we went in there because George Bush and Dick Cheney decided to invade this country, which had nothing to do with 9-11. They manufactured this evidence about WMDs. So 600,000 people died because of us. That's just in Iraq. I, then there were the wider ramifications of the war. In Syria, um, but in, in, in all these Middle Eastern countries that experience uh, these tumultuous events, afterwards, and are still experiencing these events, ISIS was created as a direct result of that war we went in. And uh, uh, maybe another million people lost their lives. So what I'm arguing for is immigration as reparations. If, 600,000 Iraqis died as a result of our war, shouldn't it be morally incumbent upon us to let in 600,000 living Iraqis and give them a chance at a better life? Uh, so in country after country, the West has gone in and launched these wars. And more than even when it's not outright war, what we do is we sell them guns. Look at... The countries of the Northern Triangle, which is uh, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, and Honduras, they're coming to the U.S. in record numbers. Why? Not because they hate their countries, but because decades of U.S. intervention in their politics uh, has rendered those countries ungovernable. And after we we interfered in their politics, we sell them guns. The vast majority of the guns in Latin America come from the United States every day 700 guns crossed the U.S.-Mexican border going down south. Uh, Three-quarters of all the guns in Mexico, 98% of the guns in the Bahamas come from the United States. We sell them the guns, and then um, we emptied our prisons uh, and deported some of the most violent criminals from the prisons of California, for example, uh, and sent deported them down south, which created... Uh, criminal organizations like MS-13. So they are coming here because we created these uh, conflicts um, uh, which continue to this day. Earlier there were conflicts between guerrillas and these uh, government juntas and today they are between different drug gangs. And why are the drug gangs fighting? Because they they're creating this product which the United States is the biggest customer of. We sell them the guns, we buy their drugs. Uh, It's impossible for people to live there. The homicide figures are even higher than in, in the Middle East. And then we wonder why they're coming to our borders. They are coming here because they have no choice.
3: Now, if the uh, people like Stephen Miller and Donald Trump had their way, um, all of this history would be um, separated from, and that framework would be separated from their response to immigrants. And indeed, it has been. In their rhetoric, you would never hear them mention any of the destabilizing efforts that the U.S. has had a hand in. Uh, instead, uh, the uh, immigrants are, and refugees are painted in a very different light, right? Uh, how do you view how immigrants and refugees are framed, separated from that history? Essentially, they're seen as um, moochers, you know, people who are taking advantage of a generous liberal democracy of the West.
5: Well, I doubt Donald Trump has read much, if any history. Um, he he compared the refugees to vomit. He said these people coming across, blah, they're like vomit, human beings, living, breathing human beings. He thinks are vomit. This is the this man's conception of uh, these refugees. I met these people. I spent a lot of time, for example, in the migrant shelters of Tijuana. And I remember meeting a 23-year-old mother named Saira, who I write about in my book. And she had this cherubic uh, 18-month-old baby uh, that was sitting on her lap. And she was telling me why she left her town in Honduras. She said that uh, the gangs had come looking for her husband. Her husband wasn't in the gangs, but he would happened to witness a gang murder, and so he had to flee. So the gangs came looking for him, and when he wasn't there, they told Saira that they would be taking her boy when he was a little older. So she fled uh, because they were going to, well, kill her, take her uh, her boy, um, and she was going to apply for asylum. I met her in Tijuana, and she was going to go the next day and present herself at an asylum office. and. Um, and ask for her legal right under international conventions that the United States has signed. She has clearly a well-founded fear of persecution. And I said to her, you know, you can do that, but we've got this family separation policy, and they're going to snatch your little boy away from you. And they might send him to an institution hundreds of miles away from you. You know that that's the risk you're running. And she said, I know. And tears were streaming down her face. And she said, you know what a mother's love is? This boy that I love with all my life, I love more than my life, I would rather never see him again. I would rather the American government take him in, even if, the, even if I never get to see him again. I know that he's alive somewhere. But maybe someday I'll have a chance at seeing him. I'd rather do that than to have to put him in a box six feet below the ground where I'm coming from. That's what a mother's love is. Wow. So she's somnified yeah. you know, these these refugees that are fleeing. There's so many of them. I met them in Morocco. I met them in Spain. Right. Tell me a little bit
3: about that. So on the other side of the planet, you saw very similar stories being told, right? I mean, different circumstances, but the threads were very familiar.
5: Yeah, I met a little Guinean family in Tangier, mother, father, and a newborn child. And they were going to go in this little, basically, Plastic dengue. It wasn't even a lifeboat. It was like a, you know one of these uh, beach boats that uh, kids play on. Um, and they were going to cross the Mediterranean in that little boat. They, they were going to put a motor on it, and they were going to drug the newborn baby so he wouldn't make a sound, uh, uh, so that you know the navies won't hear babies crying. And, uh, and I was scared for this. Uh, little child. I pleaded with them not to drug the newborn. I pleaded with them not to cross because every year thousands, even tens of thousands of migrants die in this sea crossing. And, you know, again, it was the same story. They come from the country of Guinea, which is a desperately poor West African country. Uh, And it's uh, the main thing it has to sell is minerals, particularly bauxite. There's an American uh, hedge fund which uh, basically uh, controls most of the bauxite production in guinea uh, and the mm-hmm. owner of the hedge fund uh, bought a hundred million dollar penthouse uh, in, uh, overlooking central park and another person associated with this hedge fund bought a 900 acre estate in the english countryside where's that money coming from it's coming from the country of guinea which they're ripped off so badly that they've been subject to multiple fines and lawsuits but in all these countries When the colonialists left, colonialism didn't leave with them. Uh, It got transformed into corporate colonialism. In country after country, there are these incredibly powerful Western multinationals Mm -hmm. that have gone in, corrupted local governments, extracted uh, the mineral wealth of these countries, and rendered them ungovernable and destitute. So when these families going to Europe, to the countries that colonized them. All they're doing is following the money, their money. Mm.
3: There's also the issue of climate refugees, which you uh, address in the op-ed that you had written. And this is the basis of a lot of the Global South's demands in negotiations with the North with the wealthy nations when it has come time uh, when when they have their annual UN meetings on climate change because of course the responsibility for putting so much carbon into the atmosphere lies more with the West uh, than it does with a lot of the developing nations that are bearing the cost of it um, is it fair to put climate refugees on the same um, uh, you know, in the, within the same framework as refugees of war and, and, and other Western-led destabilization?
5: So mass migration is going to be the defining human phenomenon of the 21st century. By the end of the century, estimates range from 200 million to 1 billion people that are going to be displaced by climate change. You think 4 million Syrians um, fleeing to Germany are an issue now? Uh, what happens when Bangladesh gets flooded and 400 million Bangladeshis have to find dry land? Entire island nations are going to be underwater by the middle of the century. Where are those people going to go? Uh, there's it's drought, it's desertification across the globe, particularly in the poorest countries, you know, because often they're the ones closest to the equator. Uh, their populations have to flee. Uh, uh, they can't grow crops on withered land, um, they're subject to typhoons and hurricanes. Uh, so let's look at the chain of responsibility. The United States is responsible for one-third of the excess carbon in the atmosphere, the EU another quarter, so the lion's share belongs to these rich countries that built up their economies and then emitted whatever they wanted into the atmosphere. Now they're asking you know, India and China and other countries to reduce their emissions. The United States, let's not forget, is the only country that walked out of the Paris Accords. Um, and uh, it has actually increased its emissions in recent years. So all these people are fleeing. Their homes have been destroyed because of us. Uh, and it's only fair that we resettle these refugees. The United States should take in a third of the refugees displaced by climate change and the EU another quarter. It's only fair. It's morally just.
3: Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Suketu, and also do stay safe, uh, you know, from all the crazy people out there for whom logic uh, is, is dangerous. Thank you so much and good luck to you.
5: Thank you, Sonali. Thanks so much.
3: My guest has been Suketu Mehta. He's the author of Maximum City, Bombay Lost and Found, which won several awards and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His work has been published in the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, Granta, Harper's Magazine, and more. He's associate professor of journalism at New York University. And we've been discussing his latest book called This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Golhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. To be a brown-skinned immigrant in today's America is to immediately be part of a demographic that has become demonized and weaponized for political use. Octavio Solis, the acclaimed playwright, grew up along the US-Mexico border in El Paso, Texas. In his new memoir, Retablos, Stories from a Life Lived Along the Border, Solis writes poetic vignettes from his childhood and complicates the simplistic narrative that supporters of President Donald Trump have been fed. Octavio Solis has written over 20 plays. He's considered to be one of the most prominent Latino playwrights in America. He's also produced and directed numerous plays and even produced films and won awards and fellowships. He now joins me to discuss his new book. Welcome to the program, Octavio.
6: Thank you, Sonali. It's my pleasure to be here.
3: What are retablos for us non-Spanish-speaking members of the audience? What does that word mean?
6: Well, they're a a kind of uh, painted um thank you note sent to the divine for their way for their way of interceding uh in, in a situation that put that individual in some danger, at risk, at risk of losing their life, at risk of losing their livelihood, and uh, in, in some kind of distress, this individual called out for the divine to save them, to help them. And that could be a particular santo or the Virgen de Guadalupe or even God himself. Um when that help came. This individual in in, in um, Mexican culture and some specific Mexican cultures um, felt a need to thank the divine for this intercession, and so they ask a a painter to paint it the paint uh, a representation of that moment of crisis, along with the, the image of the saint, and a little narrative written uh, on the actual picture, uh, thanking. The divine for for their help in in solving this 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 uh, in resolving this crisis. I felt like my stories um, were like that. I thought of them as, as as a series of retablos, as as moments where I felt the divine interceding, and what the divine could be, be can be, could could be anything. Uh, but I felt like 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 these were moments. I had to memor uh, memorialize these moments. Um, that were significant to my growth, to my development as, as a young man and as an artist in, uh, in growing up in El Paso. Can,
3: can you read a section from your book? There's a section in the early part of your book, which I think is very relevant before we get right into uh, your childhood and some of these memories that you write
6: about. Sure, sure. This is from uh, um, one of the, uh, it's the second retablo, it's called The Way Over, and it's about how my parents um, decided to to move to El Paso, how they made a change from thinking of, some, of themselves as Mexicans and then started thinking of themselves as Americans. Uh, and I wrote this, this is a passage from, from that uh, particular story. I am an anchor baby. Someone coined the term to impugn the motives of immigrants coming to this country. They use it to suggest that for some couples, conceiving a child is not an act of love, but a ploy to secure the rights of residents. But every baby is an anchor baby for young parents navigating the stormy waters of daily life. Every baby is an anchor for those who are looking for their true north, their purpose, their identity. We give our parents hope when they drift from bad times to bad times to worse. We give them solace when they consider going back to the little they had before. I anchor them to a place and an ideal worth living for, as they anchor me. We have to go, dice ella, here is where I live, not there, dice él, but there is where we can all live, you, me, and the child, the child. We have to think of the child.
3: Octavio Solis has written the new book Retablo's stories from a life lived along the border from which he has been reading. So you grew up in El Paso, Texas. This is a border town in Texas. Um, Where were your parents from? Um, You were born here in the U.S. So as you said, you were the quote anchor baby. Um, What is the story of your parents? Because of course, all our stories begin with the stories of our parents.
6: My my, my father comes from a tiny rural community called Nasas, uh, which is in the state of Durango, by the Rio Nasas, and uh, up until he was like 16, 15, 16, he lived and worked with my, with, with, with my grandfather and his brothers tending to the, uh, to, to the lots they had where they grew um, alfalfa and corn, um, barely subsistence living. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, comes from an urban center, a, a large industrial city, Called Torreon in northern Mexico, in the state of Coahuila. Uh, the two of them met there, and uh, and they kind of were attracted to each other. But they lost touch until they ran into each other again in the town of Ciudad Juarez, which is just across the Rio Grande from El Paso. And it was there that my father started courting my my mom. My grandmother did not want them together. Uh, first of all, she thought my my my. Uh, that, that my mom was, was far too young to to be um, courting at the time, uh, to get hooked up with a, with another guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so she always scared him off with a broom. She thought he was a, hood, a hoodlum or something. Uh, but when she finally could see that the two of them were deeply in love and intended to get married, she gave them their blessing on the condition that they moved to El Paso and married there because she said, I want my children to be Americans, hmm. and uh, that was a the concession they made. My father still tried for a long time to maintain a dual a dual life, living in the U.S. and working in Mexico. Um, he commuted every day across the Rio Grande over the over the Santa Fe Bridge, um, but uh, at some point he got caught, and they told him, "Make up your mind: you either live here or you live there." And he said, "Well, my family's there, so the." checkpoint guard told him, then that's where you live. That's where you have to find a job. So he stayed, um, and, uh, and he got his first job. Unfortunately, he'd been selling ads for a radio station in, in Juarez, fortunately for him, but unfortunately, because he uh, didn't know any English, the best he could do was uh, be a dishwasher. In uh, in the Greasy Spoon in El Paso.
3: Hmm. Well, what you were just describing about people commuting back and forth across the border, and then you know even being asked by authorities to choose, is such a completely different situation from what we have today. How common was that back then?
6: It was very common. People moved freely across the border to do their shopping. Um, When we were kids, we'd go every weekend to Juarez in the car to tank up Mm -hmm. the gas, tank up the car, tank up the the gas tank because uh, it was cheaper. It was a lot cheaper there Mm -hmm. to buy gas, and groceries were cheaper. And my mom could buy all kinds of groceries, not produce because they didn't allow produce over into El Paso because of uh, the dangers of parasites or or insects or whatever. Uh, But everything else was game. We always went there at least once a month to get our haircuts, uh, so as, ch- as, as children we used to get our haircuts there and uh, we also got our prescription drugs there, uh, but we lived uh, and, and, and shopped freely in El Paso as well. Mm-hmm. There are people from from Mexico who would come and do their shopping in El Paso, well-to-do families used to come over and go to the mall. My mom who worked for a long time for a department store uh, in the cosmetics department had clients who came in would spend up to $300, $400 or so on cosmetics uh, with her. They were important clients, but they came from Mexico. Um, all that started, started to change uh, when, uh, when the border became uh, more militarized. Um, uh, they, they, they built a border fence in the 80s. That, that fence, that, that wall that President Trump is talking about, has is, is been there for decades in El Paso. It's there, and and it's got cameras on it, and it's got there there guards that patrol it uh, daily, all over, um, and still people find a way over it, under it, around it. They still find a way through. Mm-hmm. So the so- wall.
3: Despite the fact that uh, when you were growing up in El Paso people routinely crossed the Rio Grande um you also write in your book about the presence of la migra being um, you know there ever present and of course it, it it's not it wasn't just Mexicans and Mexican Americans living in El Paso of course there were uh, white Americans living there as well who you write held certain notions and stereotypes about kids like you so tell us about the other um, encounters that you had, the non-family encounters you had growing up in El Paso, that you write about in your book *Retablos*.
6: We were constantly assailed because um, we lived. Our, our home was less than half a, mi- excuse me, less than half a mile from the Rio Grande, and we lived in the lower valley. And uh, uh, it was uh, one of the places where, one of the areas where there was a lot of uh, uh, crossing. A lot of undocumented uh, people came through there, um, and oh, and therefore it meant that there was also there were also a lot of uh, cruisers, a lot of border patrol cruisers uh, driving around. So it was a cat and mouse game they were constantly playing with each other, and we freely participated in that because they would pull up to us when we were out there playing, and they would ask us, "Hey, did you see somebody walk?" This way. So presumably
3: uh, they knew who you were and they knew that you were living there and were born there. They didn't mistake you for a border crosser.
6: No, I mean, uh, they could tell. They, mm. they, they had their, they, they knew who we were. And they would ask us, you know, did you see somebody going this way? And we'd say, well, uh, yeah, we saw somebody going that way. When in <laughs> fact, we saw the people actually going in the opposite direction. So we would find ways to mislead them, to... Uh, to to fool around with them at night, we would uh, we'd hide in the bushes and throw water balloons at them. We were we were just dumb kids, but I had one instance where uh, border patrol actually pulled up to me, and then started asking me while I'm waiting for the bus to go see the to go to the movies, and started asking me questions, trying to verify my citizenship. Uh, in, in the country asking me to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, asking me to, um, you know, point out my address, asking me if I was a citizen. It, it just made it really, really uh, difficult for me. Mm. Um, they made me feel like like I could be uh, taken up and rounded up and put in the cor- Corralón, which is the place where they rounded up uh, uh, illegal aliens. And at, at that time,
3: and so you were born in the U.S. What about your parents? Did they have to um, sort of live in the shadows, or did they obtain their residency and then eventual citizenship?
6: No, my 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 uh, my mom came with my grandmother, and they had legal resident status. Uh, my father, though, did not. Hmm. And uh, and in the tenement where we were living as as children, uh, someone who really disliked my father. Uh, also who was Mexican but had legal status too, um, knocked him, knocked him out. Wow. And uh, and they came for him just as he was about to go to work, and my mother says, no, he he can't take him. I need him to take care of the kids because I have to go to work. Um, And the gentleman that came to take my dad said, ma'am, don't worry, this is what you need to do. Go to this building, ask for this judge, ask for a stay and ask him to see what he what he what he can do to help grant your husband legal status um so they helped her and she did just that and the judge granted him uh um a um granted him uh legal resident status until he could get his papers in order so he was uh he was held for a number of days uh, i think two or three days and it was a one of the most shameful experiences he'd ever encountered in his life. Wow. Uh, And uh, so for a long time, they maintained legal resident status, uh, and we were American citizens. Uh, But they eventually, sometime in I think maybe 82, 83, they decided to become full American citizens. Hmm. Uh, I think it coincided with uh, Reagan's um, um,
3: Amnesty.
6: Amnesty declaration. Right. Um, And uh, so now they're full uh, American citizens.
3: I want to um, just uh, wrap up our conversation, Octavia, with asking you to bring uh, relevance to what is happening in our current day America. Your experience uh, growing up at the border is so relevant today. As I said earlier, the way in which immigrants have been demonized and really weaponized for political gain by the Republican Party and especially by President Donald Trump. um, That narrative is so simplistic that these are people coming to steal American jobs and what have you, criminals and rapists. um, and, And your stories are just the opposite, right?
6: Oh yeah, it just, it's, uh, we're, just, uh, the, we're just people, we're human, and we're, we we're prone to the same flaws and the same assets that we bring to the country as, as anyone else. Uh, we're, we're a workforce, we're, a, we're artists and scientists, uh, we bring craft, real craft, and craftsmanship to to, uh, to this country uh we're, we're not just landscapers or, or maids or, or uh, janitors. There is so many, so much more that we provide to the, that we provide this country. And all it takes sometimes is one generation, one generation for that impact to be felt on a deep level. Uh, the contributions uh, are, are immense, vast and deep. Um, and it's it, it's a shame that I, that I uh, that that this is um, that that things have come to this pass. You know, I worked on Coco. I worked on the film Coco mm. uh, for Pixar. I was a cultural consultant for them, and uh, I, I'm very proud to to work for that to to have worked for that uh, company in, in helping bring a kind of vision of the immigrant experience uh, to the rest of this country. And I'm impressed at how the nation at large has embraced that film. But the same people who are embracing that film are are voting for candidates uh, and and voting and supporting a president, supporting policies that uh, that are... so damaging i think too i mean we heard stories
3: after uh trump won the election of uh people who had voted for him and whose undocumented spouse was then being deported and they thought well this isn't what i signed up for and you just wonder what else did they
6: expect (laughs) right it's but a lot of a lot of it is because uh, you know uh, sometimes the 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 mentality of of well i got on board the ship it's time we it's time for us to bring the ladder up Mm. Uh, that kind of mentality um infects uh, infects people's thinking uh, but it's mo- all motivated by fear fear that if i don't act this way i'm going to be targeted they're going to look at me as long as i have a maga hat as a latino then i won't be attacked i won't be vilified people will see that i am on their side that i that, that that i belong here mm-hmm. um and so they wrap themselves up in the American flag, thinking that they can then turn uh, uh, turn to the border and shut it down. Um, and and that's unfortunate because they have to consider how their parents came over, how their grandparents came over, how they still have families in Mexico and in all of Latin America and in really all around the world that would love to come here. Um, it's 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 sad.
3: Well, Octavio, I want to thank you so much for this time you've spent with us. Give out a website where people can learn more about your work as well as your new book, uh, which I understand is available in bookstores.
6: Sure, Sure, it's doing very well. The name of the book is Retablo Stories from a Life Lived uh, Along the Border. It's published by City Lights Press. You can find it on their website, citylights.com, I believe. My own website is octaviosolis.net. And there you can find all the other plays that I've uh, been working on. I have a new play called Mother Road, uh, which is a kind of sequel to The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, Steinbeck is a hero of mine. Wow. And uh, and it's going to be produced, the world premiere will be at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival here in Ashland, Oregon. Uh, I'm very, very proud of it, and I'm very proud to have Bill Rausch, the artistic director, uh, at the helm of this production. I've been working on this for... Really, the last five years, and I'm finally, uh, I'm gratified to see it finally uh, come to fruition in this way. But this book blindsided me. <laughs> when I started writing this book, I did not know that I was going that it was going to be a book. So um, I, I I'm I'm very pleased that it even got published. But I'm doubly pleased at the response that I have received um, across the boards. It's been really uh, satisfying.
3: Well, I want to wish you again the best of luck. The website is octaviosolis.net and you can get the book at citylights.com. Thank you so much, Octavio.
6: Thank you, Sonali. My pleasure.
3: Octavio Solis has written over 20 plays. He's considered to be one of the most prominent Latino playwrights in America. And uh, we've been discussing his new book, Retablo, Stories from a Life Lived Along the Border. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our audio podcast on iTunes and our video channel on Vimeo. Mm
5: written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director,
6: and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com
3: where you can find all our programs archived. And where you can get direct access to all
5: our video and audio files.
1: You're listening to KBO Portland. KBO
2: Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland.